thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. It's the hope that kills you, as football fans are fond of saying. And hope is not a one-way street. It can, as many football supporters know, lead to disappointment. And optimism, hope's more pragmatic sibling, is not always rewarded either. And where does the religious concept of faith come in? These things came to mind when I heard a recent item on The Naked Scientist about the effect of positive thinking on mental and physical well-being. Olivia Renz, a mental health researcher at the University of Cambridge, summed up the striking findings of a report published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. People who were more optimistic had, um, in general, a longer lifespan. But it wasn't just that. They also found that the most optimistic people were almost twice as likely to live to age 85 and beyond than the least optimistic people. Those conclusions, by the way, were drawn from a very wide survey and are unlikely to be just a blip. With me to discuss hope, faith or the lack of them are Dr. Kitty Alone and Elisa Simon from the Wolf Institute and Dr. Emmanuel Delia-Sposti, Research Associate at the Centre for Islamic Studies at the University of Cambridge. Hopefully, we can get to the bottom of this. So, my first question is a provocative one. Given the fragility of human life and the inevitability of death, is optimism simply a necessary delusion? Kitty. Well, thank you for asking me that, Ed. Um, And I think it is a provocative question. And I would take issue with the term delusion. Um... So the term delusion is very loaded and it has a particular sort of psychiatric application. And while there's reams of evidence to suggest that people have very robust biases to be overly optimistic about when they make certain inferences, when they forecast the future, um, these tend to be termed positive illusions rather than delusions. So while these may well be for sort of false 
beliefs about their own aptitudes or their own abilities or their own perceptions of the future, they're not what you might call a delusion in a purely psychiatric sense. What's the difference between an illusion and a delusion? Well, this is a, this is a really difficult question and it's hard to answer. A delusion... Um, Something has gone wrong in a delusion. There's evidence of psychopathology. Um, there's dysfunction, if you like. Whereas something like an illusion is more to do with perception. It's just sort of processed in a slightly inflated or biased way, for example. So while you may well have the positive illusion that um, everything will be all right in the end or that um, your career will be very successful, that's not a delusion. If you have the be- belief that you are particularly special because you are the son of God, for example, and you are on a mission to sort of cure the world, then in a psychiatric sense, you would be delusional. Rather so than is, is optimism then part of an illusion? If I just change that word, would you say yes? To I that? would say yes. I would say that um, we have an intuitive optimism bias, which is really quite sort of well researched and studied in the psychological literature. And um, People tend to be, so they have what we learn positive illusions, so they'll tend to make sort of overinflated estimates of their own abilities, so things like their morality, they tend to sort of, the above average effect, if you like. But this also happens in the term, um, in the sense where people have overly positive predictions about the future. So one classic example is, um, despite knowing statistics, people will still be overly positive about the future. So if you ask couples about to be married, do you think your marriage will last? Do you think you'll be getting divorced? They will inevitably respond, no, it's absolutely not us, not us, even though they've been told that 50% of marriages in, in Europe end in divorce. So there is this sort of perception of, Uh, no we're different Um, my future will be incredibly positive and it's not based on any kind of objective reality it's an illusion of optimism rather than a delusion well I think my wife wouldn't be very pleased if I told her that our marriage was (laughs) based on an illusion but there we are we won't take that further Um, Elisa what from a a faith perspective I mean you know is hope optimism part of what it is to be a religious person today I think I think it is I think there is something ingrained within faith that is that is fairly optimistic and I think it really if you look at the Abrahamic faiths there is something very optimistic ingrained in their view of history and their view of what is the end um, or the horizon of mankind where it's a perception that we're moving forward that we're getting better um, I would say that from a Jewish point of view there's this idea of tikkun olam of fixing the world that we're all trying to make this world a better place and it's not I wouldn't say it's a delusional outlook because it's not as if we don't know the big problems and the hardships that face us in this world. But it is a sense that we as humans have the ability to fix it and to move forward with humanity. And I think there is something that is just, um, it's, it's optimism that's ingrained in, ingrained in your worldview. But not all Jews are optimistic, are they? I mean, the sort of sense of you know, the, the self-questioning, the self-doubt, the sort of, you know, worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, those sort of Jewish tropes. Right. So Golda Meir, um, Israel's first female and only prime minister, said that pessimism is a luxury that a Jew can never allow himself. And I think that that is um, there is something very true about that if you look at history. But it's just a nice quote that I like to kind of take around for questions like you just asked me. If I could actually just weigh in here uh, a little bit on this idea of the connection between optimism and faith and 
you know, philosophically speaking, the doctrine of optimism, which is most commonly um, linked to the philosopher Spinoza, was actually a faith-based doctrine. So the, the, his idea of that this world is the best of all possible worlds comes from his belief in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. And because God is the best he can be, then therefore the world we have is the best of all possible worlds. And this is the, the foundation of philosophical, philosophical optimism which was obviously critiqued in numerous different ways, most most notably by Voltaire and Candide. But I think the Spinozan, I think Voltaire is, is in some ways quite unfair to Spinoza and the Spinozan, the, the tenets of, of, of optimism actually transcend the critique because it's not about every single act being the best possible act, but the world as a whole being the best it can be. Elisa touched on the Jewish view. Uh, now, of course, you're a specialist in Islamic studies and particularly Shia uh, Islam. Are there any aspects of that that are uh, sometimes we see the stereotype of the Shia Muslim at some festivals beating himself in public as a, a way of the sort of self-mortification? Um, and what, what, what does Islam teach us about optimism and hope? I actually think that's a really interesting question. And in fact, when I first heard about this topic, the thing that immediately sprang to mind with, with the work I'm currently doing, the research I'm currently doing um, among, sort of, especially among young Shia Muslims in, in Europe, is this, this idea of redemption, and which is often linked to three theological figures. Um, one is Imam Ali, one is Imam Hussein, and one is Imam Mahdi who the Shias believe is the 12th imam, this is 12 Shias I'm talking about, is the 12th imam who has gone in an, into occultation and who will come back on the day of judgment. Very similar to Jesus, so the figure of Jesus in, in Christianity. And so a lot of Shia thought and practice and theology is based around this idea of how do I bring the imam back? Or who, how, how can I be close to the imam of our time? They, they refer to him as the imam of our time. And so there is this idea that comes, that stems from this, the historical legacy of the Battle of Karbala and, and the death of Imam Hussein, that you have this sort of, the underdog who is rising up against tyranny, and there is this tradition of trying to uphold justice and truth, and that transcends the world in which we live and it, it goes all the way to the the return of the Mahdi. Yeah, so I was I was listening to everything you were saying and this is actually some, a thought I had this morning about um, the essence of the Messiah in Judaism versus the Mahdi in, um, in Shiism and I think there's a lot of uh, connecting points there in the outlook of, of it in, in the optimistic view optimistic view of of what is the future. And I think also in Judaism, um, the fact that every day you end the prayer and you say, even if, you know, even if the Messiah is taking his time, every day I will wait for him. And this idea that one day, no matter how bad things get, no matter if there is a big war and a lot of people are killed, the Messiah will come and um, there will be again a temple. Um, I think that very much connects to this um, sense of redemption, the sense that no matter what happens to us as humans, there will be this godlike um, presence again on earth. Please forgive me for being the pessimist that interrupts <laughs> this sort of, you know, uh, optimistic conversation that the two of you are having. But actually, when we look out there and look at the last century uh, of the conflict, of the violence, of the destruction, of the mayhem caused by by often religious people, and I, I am the only man in this room, so I, I admit that often by religious men, 
But nevertheless, all that destruction, and, and I, I think it's, one has to challenge that assumption that it's all going to get better just on the practical base of what I see around me. Is it simply about having faith that things will get better or is there something more to it than that? I mean, uh, Kitty, you were grounding it in who we are, that we're naturally yeah. optimists. But how can we naturally be optimistic? How does the research balance against all these terrible things that are going on out there? Yeah, sure. So it's um, interestingly... Um, this optimism bias that I was talking about, this sort of um, overly positive predicting or forecasting, doesn't exist in people with mild depression. In fact, it's sort of depressive realism. So people with mild depressive symptoms tend to be much more accurate in their forecasting or their predictive abilities. Um, interestingly, people with much more severe depression tend to have a negative bias. So they'll predict sort of overly negative events. Um, and one of the questions that's raised in psychology all the time is, well, how can this positive bias, positive illusion, or this optimism bias, how can it, how can it possibly survive when you sort of experience the crushing failures of life? How does it possibly continue? And um, a woman called um, Tali Sharot, or Tali Sharot, an Israeli um, psychologist at UCL, she's found really good evidence um, that what is actually sort of maintaining this optimism bias in the face of sort of unrelenting, <laughs> grueling reality is the fact that um, we have very sort of selective belief updatings. So we, pr- we, select, um, we update our belief systems about the future much more selectively when it comes to positive information about the future. So it's very one-sided. So basically people are selectively um, processing positive information about the future and this the result of this is that it will sort of maintain this optimism bias even in the face of sort of contradictory evidence so it's really a sort of a a one-sided processing problem if you like okay well i think that brings us to the end of part one and we'll go to the processing problem in part two (laughs) you're listening to naked reflections and with me this week are kitty alone elisa simon and emmanuel deli esposti and we're discussing optimism hope and faith Let me ground this discussion by citing a bit of social science research. David Spiegelhalter, Professor of Public Understanding of Risk at Cambridge University, looked into the question of serendipity and why good outcomes tend to happen more for some people than others. He found that positive attitudes and outgoing behaviour create opportunities that would not necessarily occur for a quiet pessimist. In other words, optimism creates its own weather. So... Optimism creates its own weather. Hmm. When I look at the Middle East, and I'm sorry to ground it in such sort of practical um, difficulties, but there are such problems on the ground, intra-Muslim problems with the Shia-Sunni divide. In Israel, we're recording this as there's questions over election time in Israel and the incredible divides. And in fact, most of the regions in the Middle East are going through a really tumultuous time. So in this context, what grounds are there for hope? Let's start with the Shia-Sunni situation. That's a very big question, Ed. It seems to be on the ground, certainly almost getting worse progressively. I would almost want to take the conversation back to, say, a more conceptual level, because I think if you look at things on a day-to-day basis and you look in, in terms of how events are playing out around the world it is very easy to become a little bit overwhelmed and feel and become a bit of a pessimist in a way and see see the sort of glass half empty but I think if you take a long view of history and the way in which human civilization and, and humans have changed over time and the way in which things have progressively got better 
That doesn't mean that they don't get worse in between. But overall, I think it nobody could claim that the arc of history is not in some way progressive, even if there are moments of backlash and there are... I think we are living in such a moment at the where we are we are living in the the backlash against the post cold war era in a way and where we had this this decade or so of international cooperation and we are now living with the with the results of that but that doesn't mean that in another 20 30 40 50 years that things will remain the same it sounds and like you're an optimist at heart perhaps <laughs> and maybe I'm a covert, covert optimist Kitty, the work that you've, you're, you're doing, and I'd like to build on what Emmanuel said, um, is actually interviewing people of mm. faith, working yeah. together in challenging contexts in the UK. Yes. Uh, th- does that shed any light on questions of optimism and hope? So the people that I've spoken to, the ones that I've been most sort of struck by are those who work in the most challenging and deprived areas of the UK so you might they have every reason to be sort of pessimistic or um, traumatized by what they're dealing with but actually it's precisely these people that are not necessarily optimistic they have an extraordinary drive to make a difference to make a change. Emmanuel was talking about um, the arc of history and it's changing and I think that's that's something that is perhaps inherent in optimism is the knowledge that things will not stay the same. Things might not get better, but they will change. And certainly the people that I've spoken to who work in really challenging um, environments, A, in terms of of social division, religious division, but also they live under the constant threat of funding cuts. Um, That doesn't seem to quash or stymie their their desire to make change happen. Um, So whether you could define that or class that as a, a subset of optimistic behaviours, then I, I would. I think that they are they are optimistic in the face of sort of extraordinary odds against them, really. So, Elisa, I wonder if there are examples either in your work or whether there are religious examples of people who've had to deal with in- incredibly difficult, traumatic situations, but have retained that sense of optimism and hope for the future that, that, that you could think of. Um, I can. I think one of the places that you see this most is today in Israel. Um, so there is the religious settler movement, which many people like to condemn the settler movement, uh, that is actually working with its Palestinian neighbors towards achieving peace. And it's a religious movement in it that it's run by the rabbis and the imams of the regions. Um, and it's interesting to see how politics can be pushed aside and religion can be really the spotlight of this communication. And people are coming together and talking, even though they aren't politicians, and they're both living over the green line in an incredibly hard and difficult and violent situation. Both sides have suffered many losses, and still able to come together and and pray together sometimes and have meals together. And I think that that is a place where you really see, specifically in the settler and the peace movement uh, of the settlers in the region of the West Bank, you see these um, coalitions forming that are very diverse and very unexpected. Elisa, the perception of the settler movement, particularly the religious settler movement, uh, and its relationship with Palestinian neighbours, um, is not as rosy as you have depicted. Uh, and we know for a fact that there are real um, examples of violence um, by these settlers. Um, so, you know, are you really telling us that relations are so encouraging and positive? I think what's important to understand is that the settler movement is diverse. 
just as any society is diverse, so is the settler movement. And while there is um, a large sect in the settler movement that is violent, unfortunately, and that sees the conflict through um, a conflict over land and wants to essentially own the whole part of the land, there is also a part of the settler movement that is not and actually just wants to find a way to coexist with its Palestinian neighbors without being uprooted from what they feel is their home. Um, so I think that while these people are more optimists about the availability of peace and a future together, it's not an optimistic view. It's just understanding that settlers are not all the same. They don't uh, all hold the same political opinions about what should be done with their Palestinian neighbors. They don't all want to move them to Jordan, for example. So, so you see, some of the Palestinians that I know, and I'm sure it's the, the same with you, their only encounter with Jews has been through soldiers or policemen or settlers who are behaving very badly. So their perception of the Jews, let alone Israelis, is incredibly negative and there's no sense of optimism there. Right. And I think that perception, there's a lot of truth in in it. I think that's a perception that if you're living it as a Palestinian in the West Bank, um, you could easily achieve that perception. But at the same time, there are centers all over the West Bank in which settlers and Palestinians are coming together and talking about these issues. Um, One of the most famous centers is Shorashim Judur, and it's in in Gush Etzion. And the person who established it is Rabbi Menachem Fruman. And I think that that is a center that has already attracted more than 10,000 individuals. And so I think that it is important to see these perspectives as well inside of of the realistic uh, picture, which is which is pretty grim, and it's a conflict zone like other conflict zones, right. where it's very hard to find examples of some kind of uh, optimism and hope. But in every conflict zone, there's some somewhere, right, right. And is the optimism grounded on the encounter and the meeting of people, or is it grounded in their their religiosity? I think it's a variation. Some of them are very much grounded in the in the religiosity where you'll have a rabbi open with like a sermon about how, you know, the Abrahamic faiths, we share so much heritage. Um, and some of them, it'll be it'll be something a little bit more realistic. Yeah. I think sometimes there's a bit of a problem when we just focus on commonality. I mean, I think, you know, so many and I'm maybe not dealing in a conflict zone, but so many dialogues that I come across with which are 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 vacuous because we're all children of Abraham or we're children of Adam. And actually, we're not getting to grips with any of the problems. Um, And by by focusing on just what we have in common, it it becomes a, a barrier, it becomes a hindrance to real conversation. Yeah, I, I, just the tip, and I think you're completely correct, Ed. So um, many of the people that I've spoken to in um, on the project that, project that I'm doing here at The Wolf have said precisely the same thing, that they, they call... Um, there's this sort of two levels to interfaith engagement, if you like. There's on the surface, there's what they term sort of tea and samosas, where everybody come, comes together. And, you know, there's the classic trope of the priest, the imam and the rabbi all shaking hands. Um and then there's the really difficult work that goes on. So, for example, work in Luton and in Bradford that's um, involving um, faith communities, different faith communities who are coming together to tackle really difficult issues like grooming, child exploitation, how to raise awareness with, um, for parents for these kind of issues. And it's really hard. And a lot of that involves having difficult conversations within their own faith communities as well as between faith communities. And it's acknowledging in a really open and honest way stark differences and only by acknowledging the differences can you then progress forward so it's like you're saying it's much more than just oh this is what we have in common it's equally important is to sort of discuss and highlight what we have in difference Mm. just to sort of go back slightly what we were saying earlier and how is optimism an illusion 
that perhaps we can only function if we have some level of optimism. You know, the world I, being yeah. the way it is. I would eagerly chime in there and completely agree with you and in fact a lot of researchers have suggested that it's actually from an evolutionary perspective it's adaptive so one of the things about being human about being able to have sort of forecasting ability or see or imagine your future is the knowledge that we all inevitably going to die and many people have sort of suggested that well if this sort of predictive forecasting evolved just on its own why would anybody do anything why would they ever sort of engage in sort of behaviors that might um, so why would they ever engage, for example, in behaviours such as storing food for the future if, if they know that they're going to die? But if this um, forecasting or predictive forecasting evolved alongside like an illusion of optimism, then it makes sense. Then people are more motivated to sort of engage in behaviours for the long term. So I think it does serve a really useful function. And then if not, it's sort of at an evolutionary level, it's certainly adaptive, but also just... On a day-to-day level, I mean, Ed was talking earlier about um, the health and well-being um, associations of optimism. And, I mean, it's just extraordinary. So, for example, just to um, shout out some statistics here, um, a survey was run with 97,000 participants. And they found, or the survey reported, that optimists are 14% less likely to die between the ages of 50 and 65. They're 30% less likely to die from a heart attack. Um, and also optimists, um, or optimism as a, as a personality trait, seems to be related to extended survival time in cancer and aid patients. So it's, it's clearly, it has a use, it's, it's functional. I mean, it may not, it's not going to obviously stop death, but it's going to make your time much more enjoyable and perhaps prolong it even more so. and is it innate kitty or is it hardwired into us i think if you take the view that it's evolutionary adaptive then i would say that it's probably something that's quite innate to us um and one thing that you could argue here is that well um it must be sort of in some sense natural to us because when it goes wrong as in depressives or with some major sort of psychological disruption then we tend to lose that illusion of optimism or the illusion of the optimism bias it tends to be um, something that's involved in pathology rather than natural cognitive functioning so to me it would suggest that yes um, optimism is something that is uniquely characteristic of humans so one final question If we are to live for many more hundreds of years because medical progress allows us to do that, will we lose a sense of optimism? No. I'm optimistic about that. I don't think so. Well, are we all optimists? Elisa, would you define yourself as an optimist or how would you define yourself? I definitely think I am an optimist. And Kitty, you are, Emmanuel? I think you already defined me as one earlier, didn't you? But do you define yourself as one? I think on the whole, yes, I would say. Obviously, it depends on the circumstances, but overall, I tend to try and be optimistic. So from this pragmatic optimist, many thanks to my guests, Kitty Alone, Elisa Simon and Emmanuel Deli Esposti. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time when we're talking about authority. Do we believe experts anymore? Save 
Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.